This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy. Oh, the volumes in here are nice and loud. That's a lot better. Today on the show, we have a broad spectrum of medical specialists, a very broad spectrum. We're going to be starting off in the brain, one of my favourite organs, then move to our immune system and finally return to the head. But this time it's not the brain, it's the mind. Dr. Jeremy Freeman is a brain care specialist working at the Royal Children's Hospital. (laughs) I love that term, brain care specialist. As a paediatric neurologist, he has developed a reputation of an expert in the field of epilepsy, treating some very, very complex and refractory cases. Interestingly, Jeremy is also a prescriber of medical marijuana, and he has some interesting reflections on that particular practice. He'll be talking about that as well as some of the new gene therapies for neurological conditions. And he told me just before he walked into the uh, studio, new gene therapies, that is a lot to talk about in about 15 minutes, but we'll, we'll see where we go. Dr. David Hawkes is the Director of Molecular Biology and Biochemistry at the Victorian Cytology Service. His role focuses on integrating human papilloma virus, that's HPV, testing as part of the new National Cervical Screening Program. And he's involved in a variety of research projects to improve women's health. Our good friend, nurse EpiPen, will be having a fireside chat with David, asking him all about the new Gardasil vaccine and the extraordinary gains we've made in reducing cervical cancer via vaccination and uh, some vaccination issues more generally. And our youngest psychiatrist on the team, Dr. Junior, will be joining us in the studio. As a testament to his searing intellect and charm, Junior is now head of a psychiatry unit. I'm nodding. Yes, he's nodding. We can clarify that. He's also embarking on a PhD and he has a thriving private practice. He really, really does. Today, he'll be leading us by the hand along the path of medical consent with a very personal experience. I think we'll all be sharing. I mean, really, how good is that? More medical specialists than at a European car sale, all chomping at the bit to let you into their workday lives. All this and so much more for the next hour on radiotherapy. Good morning, nurse EpiPen. Good morning, panel. Good morning, Mal. How are we all? Yay! <laughs> We're here. Woo-hoo. And the sun's shining. Woohoo! The levels here are very high. I'll have to figure out how to change that. Uh, Junior, good to have you uh, back on the show. You're coming into the studio next week as well. You're everywhere. Here, there, everywhere, trying to do my bit. Oh, you are. And uh, Dave, thanks for coming in. No worries. I'm sounding a little husky because me, like a lot of the people, are uh, just recovering from influenza A. <gasps> Fair dinkum. Yep. Oh, segue, segue. Ooh, we're going to have to talk about that in a second. Yes, and Dr. Jeremy Freeman. Morning, Dr. Mal. Yes, I think I had something. I don't know that it was flu A. I didn't get myself swabbed. Really? So tell us about uh, influenza A, EpiPen. So um, it's been a very interesting time and a season just currently, and I work in a big teaching hospital, and recently there have been three people in intensive care. So I just, it just pricked my interest, and I thought, excuse the pun, and I thought I might just mention what's been going on. So uh, this it's not the worst season that we've had on record, but... There's been some very big um, figures, certainly in the older age group, and I'm sure um, Dr. Dave might help me with some of the virology involved in the flu virus. But um, there have been 70,000 cases so far re- recorded this year. That's across the nation. 70,000. 70,000 yep. cases. Yep, yep. And um, it wow. affects, it, it depends on which strain or which virus that it is that um, affects people. So um, this one, this year we've had uh, elderly people have been um, more more cases in that group. But overall, elderly, young, immunocompromised and medically at risk people uh, and Indigenous groups are the ones that we usually worry about for the flu. Um, and why why are there more cases this year? Possibly because we're testing more, but then also a lot of people don't get tested when they start feeling very unwell. And we don't really know the true picture of the flu season until the end of it because that's when all the stats are come in and then they analyse what's been going on. Can I ask Dave a question? So, Dave, you know, as soon as uh, the flu vax comes out at my hospital, and I work at the same hospital as Penny, I rush in to get my jab. And um, 
been doing that for years. Uh, but I've heard that sometimes you need two jabs of influenza A. Is this true? So not an immunologist, so take this with a grain of salt. But oh, okay. um, I'm that keen on the vaccine. I actually took part in the clinical trial for the quadrivalent vaccine for the two strains of A and two strains of B because uh, I have parents who have had heart attacks and strokes and are obviously in a high-risk group and yep. I have two children under four who are in high-risk groups. Yeah, so yeah. I, I took part in that. So probably gives you an idea of where my, my vaccine. So I was vaccinated. The, generally, the flu vaccine is between 50 and 70% uh, effective. The only group that I'm aware of, and again, not an immunologist and not a medical doctor, that require two doses about a month apart are children when they're getting their first influenza. Um, I've just come back from Singapore because there's no rest for the wicked. And apparently, and this is talking as a, a consumer rather than a, a, a virologist, that Australia and Hong Kong, about six weeks ago in Australia, the virulent strain really hit. Yeah. And so that's that's where it's going. And, and I was speaking to a lot of people from the Philippines and from Malaysia and they were going, yeah, everybody knows about the Australian strain and the, the Hong Kong strain. And so it's sort of, it's, I think the strain itself is more virulent. Mm. So, I mean, on average in the world, 200,000 people have died of influenza every year. So it's deaths from influenza mm. are, are pretty common. But then I think the other thing is that uh, and whether or not this plays a role, I do know that New South, Wales, New South Wales Health has rolled out a point of care flu testing this year for the first time as of May, which I think gives a flu result in about an hour. What, so you come into a doctor's clinic, you they, think, they think you've got the flu, they test you on the spot, can give you an answer in an hour? Yep. Wow. So, and that's something that certainly, um, it, it's been, this particular company, which I won't name, they're, they're mm-hmm. sort of specialist point of care. Uh, they do a whole range of tests. They've had a lot of tests with success with TB in developing countries because obviously someone comes to the clinic, they can have the test, they can get the results pretty much there and then. They don't have to wait for a full batch of 90 samples and then three hours for a test. And so maybe it will be interesting to know because it's only New South Wales. Yeah. So we'll be actually able to sort of see. Did you um, Did you get the flu vax? I did. And you still got the flu? I did. Ooh. Uh, so that's why it's not 100% effective. Oh. So, And also, um, I thought I'd just tell you which strains are in this year's flu shot. So there are four. So it's one from the H1N1, which if you remember in 2009 was the troublesome one. So we've got an, a Michigan strain, we've got a Hong Kong, we've got a Brisbane, and then we've got a Phuket. The Phuket one's the B. So I just thought that... They're always really interesting what's in the vaccine. Isn't it amazing how they name these yeah. vaccines? After and me? just to go back to flu shots, so if it's your first time ever having a flu yeah. shot, shot, it's recommended to have two doses oh, really? four weeks apart, not only children. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So, uh, group. I've heard it on the grapevine. Um, junior. The, the, the interesting thing that always <laughs> comes to mind is... Um, you know, what percentage of, uh, you know, flu vaccines are actually covered? Uh, sorry, um, influenza strains are actually covered. You know, mm. clearly, um, like David here, he's been immunised this year but still manages to, unfortunately, contract mm. the virus. And, you know, from a health economic perspective, is it something really, really worth pursuing? Oh, so, again, it's sort of 50 to 70% successful. So fifty to 70% successful. Uh, HPV, which is where I work at the moment, is a really dumb virus. It's a DNA virus. <laughs> it doesn't mutate really at uh, all. I did my PhD in HIV, which mutates as 1% of the genome changes every replication cycle. And influenza is much closer to HIV. So when you wow. talk about sort of the level of mutation you can get and the level of variation you can get even yeah. within a season, it's it's always going to be touch and go. Ironically, the last time I got flu was in 2009 uh, in the UK, which was, you know, the last big one that we had come mm. through. But I think that the problem itself is that my understanding, again, not a medical person, is that influenza itself is not pleasant, but it opens up uh, vulnerable people to secondary mm, infections. Mm, it's, mm. The, it's the bronchitis, it's the secondary pneumonia and those mm. sorts of things which can really do a lot of damage. So it's, it's, it's like a gateway virus. Mm, mm, uh, mm. It can knock you down, it can really put you on the back foot and that opens you up and that's why elderly people are obviously at higher risk. Do you know, you know how people say, I've got a bit of the flu? It's like saying, I'm a bit pregnant, you know? It's just, it is, it, I think I, I had the flu once and then I, I, 
every time after that, this is about 20 years ago, I've been getting the immunisation because I remember just being in bed, shivering and could not get out of bed if you paid me. Like I was was just completely knocked out and I thought, that's the flu. Yeah. The thing is, it's beautiful. It's the same in every language. I know when I was doing German, it's like when in German they say, I have die Grippe, which is the flu. And, And my teacher was going, yeah, that means they've got sniffles. Oh. So it is a universal <laughs> thing. It's not purely an English language. Thing, a bit so. of the flu. Yeah. Hey, um, on to other things. Did you know what? Do you know? I should say, future tense. What this Thursday, the fourteenth of September, is? Have a guess. Past me, 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 me. Epi? Are you okay, Day? It is. Are you okay, Day? Which is a big, big deal. Now, are you okay, Day? Um, I mean, you should be, you know, you could be asking people, are you okay any day? But it's basically the big event um, for the Are You Okay project. And it's basically about asking people you're concerned about, hey, how are things going? Are you okay? And, it can't, and a lot of times it might not be easy to do that. And you might be thinking about, well, what do I do if they say no? Head over to the Are You Okay website because there are lots of resources about, hey, just check in with a pal what to, or a workmate or, or somebody at school or uni, what to do if you're concerned about them, how to then go on to perhaps getting professional help and so forth. And it is a bonzo website. They've got these little animations. It's really, really cool. So it's Are You OK Day, September 14th. 14th. So it's gone. What? Mal. Oh, my goodness. Mal, you are an absolute-minded okay? prophet. Yeah. No, I'm not OK. Sorry, I'll take that back. I meant to say it's in the past. I said it's in the future, didn't I? Yeah. I said Thursday was Are You OK Day? So it's just that once a year they have that. But maybe But every day. Every day. Every day Lovely. you can ask people, yeah. So that was the big event. Oh, my goodness, I'm not OK. Oh, why? You know the bad thing about this will be podcasted. <laughs> and for years to come, people will say, I meant to say, it was last Thursday, but it is something you can do. Any day of the year, head to the R-U-O-K website. We've got a big show to get through. Lots of stuff to talk about. The uh, studio is bristling with medical and science brains, EpiPen. I can feel the brains. It's fantastic. That, that's a segue over to you. Oh, brains. What am I supposed to say? <laughs> no, so now we're talking with Dave about... Oh, Dave. The, yeah, oh, of classes. course. Hey. Hang on, because I bags to interview Dave. So, Dave... <laughs> Read your production sheet. <laughs> Dave. I Morning. met Dave at um, a very interesting event. It was uh, um, a launch of a book called Fast Tracked and Flawed, Gardasil, The Truth About Gardasil. And we were sitting in the audience and um, it was a group of people and all of a sudden the ha- my hackles were going up because I could sniff out anti-vaxxers in the room. And we waited, waited, waited and I thought, when am I going to say something? Who's going to say something? Please could somebody in the audience say something because there were so many false things being stated and said and all of a sudden Dave jumps to his feet and he starts in a very respectful kind way just debunking some of the things that they were saying Dave you're the like Superman Dave tell us about Gardasil <laughs> and why this book wasn't great so I guess the thing is, like, I work on H- HPV, but I actually work in diagnostics. So we're replacing pap screening at the end of the year with HPV screening. Just fill me in because I don't understand. So what it is is obviously women in Australia gets pap screening from the age of 18 every two years, and, and that's great. But it's not the best test. I think Australia runs the best program in the world, but we've seen sort of over the last 10 years that the detection rate and the cancer rates have stabilised. We're, we're not getting any more improvements after we've sort of really maximised the, the program. So what happens with with cervical cancer, 99.7% of cervical cancers are associated with HPV and over 93% of them are associated with 14 types that will actually be tested for under the new program. So essentially no HPV, no cervical cancer. And the cervical cancers that are not HPV associated uh, they're really tricky and we're really not very good at picking them up. They're sort of... I, I won't go into the details because I'll embarrass myself about getting the anatomy wrong, but essentially they're unusual cancers. We're not very good at picking them up. The other thing we're not very good at picking up is cervical cancers is women under 25. So the new program will start at 25. Uh, it will be the same cervical collection. They'll get tested for HPV. And then if they're HPV negative, it's come back in five years. So the average woman will go from about 26 uh, cervical screening tests a lifetime to nine. Um, I'm yet to hear too many complaints about that from any of the participants. 
Sorry, Pen. Epi Pen. I've just walked into your fireside chat. I will shut up after no, this. No, no, but no. But I just got to. I've got to put that up there in neon lights. That is unbelievable. So, just a couple of things that you said. One is that ninety nine point nine something point seven. Yep. Cervical cancers are associated with HPV. Yes. I didn't know that. So, no basically no HPV, no cancer. That's correct. So. Um, you can screen for HPV instead of the pap smears, which are in, you know can be unpleasant and intrusive and so forth. So, and, so I'll just stop you there. The collection's the same. Oh, the, oh so the difference you, is oh, okay. So you have to do a swab. The difference, uh, a, a brush or a broom, normally. Right. Uh, the difference is looking at cells and looking at morphology is an art. Uh, it's a science and everything like that, but it relies on expertise and it relies on you know being able to detect something, and so it's. It is a very good program, but we're pretty much... I know at the VCS where I work, we have, I think, some of the best screeners in the world. Right. Uh, and we pick, we do very well by any metric you guess. But this, the, the actual process itself is not as sensitive as HPV. Gotcha. So are you saying that the when you put the, the cells on a little glass plate and you look at those, they're done... That's not done automatically. It's done by... A, my, there is actually a rule in the uh, government requirements uh, that a pap screener cannot look at more than 70 a day. They are done one person, one microscope, the same way they have for 50 years. What, so you don't have a computer doing it? Nope. Dinkum, I thought there was a computer screening thing that does it. We have computer assisted and that just doubles the rate. That's it. It still requires a person to visually check a minimum of 20 different sites on a slide to confirm. Wow. I think that's the case for most histology screening, any frozen sections um, that pathologists do. So when you're um, in an operation, they take out a specimen from your body, they need to actually look at the cell under the microscope. That has to be done by a person, a very well-trained person. Um, The same thing with most cellular analyses as well, like semen analyses as well. There's no machines that do it. You just got someone sitting there with a microscope and a slide counting very quickly. I would have thought, I mean... I'm dumb, but I would have thought, you know, uh, if you can have a car drive itself on a road, couldn't you have a computer program that looks at itself? I mean, I don't want to dis- dis- distract away from what you want to talk about. So I'm not an anatomical yeah. pathologist. We give you an idea of yeah. there's so many complicating factors because the thing is, in a traditional slide, you could have one cell on top of another cell. All right, all right. You yeah, could have, yeah. which could give you false positives. Uh-huh. Even to sit the competency exam, the CTAC for cytology, you must have been working as a cytologist for five years. Okay. Okay. But when you put when you're looking at those um, smears, th- they put stains on them. So different colours of ink go onto that stain. So things will highlight. So it makes it easier to detect. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing is that the the pap has been the same technology for a very long point. What will actually happen is when they collect it, they'll put it into a liquid medium. We'll be able to do a HPV test. If a woman is HPV negative or HPV negative, she comes back in five years. If she's HPV positive. They take the same liquid sample and they actually make a PAP. Oh. And so there is a, still a role for PAP in the new system. And they estimate around 20%, you know, about 10% of women will be HPV positive, but about 20% because there's women in follow-up and a whole variety of, or immunocompromised, who will always have that sort of cytological check as well. So you won't need a pathologist or cytologist to look at that initial HPV thing, will you? You could just a, a biochemistry test. It's a molecular test and we've actually, I was on the panel that drew up the requirements and out of over 200 HPV tests available, currently I'm aware of six that will be able to be used in the Australian program, which are all at the gold standard internationally that have a whole variety of different things that mean that they will actually give us the most reliable result possible. Mm, Wow, great. So let's move into a little bit of something else that you're very passionate about, which is um, writing and educating and helping anti-vaxxers lose some of their power or trying to approach that issue that we have with people not wanting to have vaccines. That's a very small group. So I guess the thing is what I'll do here is I'll draw a very clear line. There is people who are vaccine hesitant, who have questions about vaccine. As a father of two children under four, I completely understand Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. They're not the people that I deal with. I don't have the skill set. I don't have the the mentality to actually do that. There's there's certain groups like the Northern Rivers Vaccination Supporters up in Byron Bay, and they have a policy of a 1,000 cups of tea. Essentially, 
It's about building relationships, about building engagements over a very long period of time that information becomes a two-way street and then people gradually earn trust and then from that trust then you actually start getting valuable knowledge transfer. Mm -hmm. The groups that I'm most interested in are what I call professional anti-vaccination groups and those are groups that actually make money from it. So Mm -hmm. the Australian Vaccination Skeptics Network uh, used to be the Australian Vaccination Network Mm -hmm. uh, is the major anti-vaccination group. Um, We've got a panel of of doctors and experts here. Do you want to guess how much they made in their best year? It's run out of somebody's front room. 50,000. $344,000. $100,000 of dollars of that was just in donations. Since they began in 1994, it's over $2.7 million. Mm -hmm. That's a very big motivation to Mm -hmm. just spout. Uh, And essentially, they're anti-vaccine. If you, you know, in Australia, literally, in before 2000, we removed mercury from vaccines. So before that, oh, it's all about the mercury. And then we removed it. And then it was all about something else. Mm-hmm. It's all about something else. It doesn't matter what happens. Mm-hmm. They are anti-vaccine. Mm-hmm. Now, they're a, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction, mm-hmm. but we do have a number of professional anti-vaccination people in Australia. And, mm-hmm. um, engaging with them doesn't really do much good. I don't debate it. And I'm uh, I'm administrator of a Facebook site called Stop the AVN, mm-hmm. um, and we've been very active in this for about since 2009. Mm-hmm. Um and we do a variety of things, but one of the things we've we've published posters at public health conferences. Uh, we're up to I think about ten papers in the peer-reviewed literature, and we also have a policy of not doing false balance. So if you'd mm. invited me to come on to talk about vaccination and have a vac- anti-vaccination on, I would say thank you very much. This is the reason I'm not coming on. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I just happen to try and combat misinformation with information, mm-hmm. and generally it's in the written form, um, and. The the book launch we were talking about, Fast Track and Flawed, was actually next to where I work. So it was just, I got about 50 different emails from people telling me it was going to be on then and there. And um, I I couldn't not attend, I don't think. And that's where you met EpiPen. That's where I met EpiPen. And so I think that just to give you an idea of the level of, of scientific and medical mm. competency, the book is called Fast Track and Flawed. One of my questions to the author and, and the publisher was, what does fast-track refer to? Mm-hmm. They're talking about the vaccine being fast-tracked. Mm-hmm. And she didn't answer a number of times. Then eventually she said, oh, it was, it, was, um, it was approved in 2006. She goes, oh, it would have been fast-tracked a year before. It was fast-tracked in 2002. It seems to be these professional anti-vaccinationists are the only ones that actually think the government is efficient and competent um, because generally these things take forever. Even I know that there's a HPV test in the US that they've got loads and loads of data for public screening and it takes the FDA at least 18 months to actually go, okay, you can say that you can use it for public screening. Mm-hmm. So the idea of someone approving a vaccine in a year is um, I mean, even with Ebola, it, I don't even think it happened with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Do you mind if I just ask you another question about uh, Gardasil? Were you about to go into that EpiPen? Because I, I'm <laughs> I mean, it's rare that I have a virologist sitting in front of me or somebody who does lots of stuff with, with viruses. Um, I read this week, after, in fact, after Pippin said you were coming on the show, that there is a new Gardasil coming out which will increase the protection against cancer, cervical cancer from currently, was it 30% to something like 70%? Um, remember when I said 99.7%? Yeah. Uh, 70%. It doesn't matter which region of the world. About 70% of cervical cancers are caused by two types, HPV-16 and HPV-18. Right. They're the ones in the vaccine, the, the current the, vaccine. The cur- so are we preventing 70% now? Or? Yep. Oh, so currently we're preventing 70% so when you through add, the vaccine. Yeah, so the Gardasil 9, which... So you said, actually, hang on, you just say that like, yeah, it's obvious. That's mind-blowing. A vaccine prevents cancers. I know it's been said a thousand times, but it is just mind-blowing. Wait till you realise that in Australia, nearly, I think it's, of the women who are at school when the program begin, it's about 80% have received at least three doses, which is an extraordinary high coverage rate for for this sort of vaccine. So the new vaccine, which is called Gardasil 9, um, I think it's set to be approved soon. And the reason it's taken a little while is they're going for two doses because there's actually data that's come out that one of the other HPV vaccines, you just need one dose. So right. two doses, Gardasil 9, and that protects against five other types. So it's 31, 33, 45, 52, and 58. <laughs> okay, I won't remember those. But <laughs> <laughs> that gives you another 21% of cancers. So 91% of cancers should be preventable by these, this new vaccine. That is just remarkable. Absolutely. 
absolutely remarkable. I mean, is somebody going to win a Nobel Prize for this, or somebody has won a Nobel Prize? I, I have a feeling someone has, but I, I this must. Is Ian Fraser? Well, Ian Fraser played a role in it. There's there's a number of different people yeah. that have played roles in it. I can't remember my Nobel Prizes very well, I'm afraid. But yeah, it's sort of it's it's, it's groundbreaking. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is that you've people sometimes forget that there's penile cancers, anal cancers, otopharyngeal cancers. The amount from HPV. Of, yep, the amount of otopharyngeal cancers, every time I look at the data, it goes a higher and higher percentage is caused by HPV. You've got vagina and vulva yeah. and those sorts of things. But, yeah, it's HPV is a cause of cancer, and it's cervical cancer, it's... It is pretty much a prerequisite. Don't, don't, I've just walked all over, the, all over your fireside <laughs> chat because I'm just so amazed. I mean, this is, this is like, you know, eradication of smallpox, don't you think? It's kind of on that level. Well, when you actually look at it, what was really funny is that because the Gardasil also covers genital warts, we got a really early warning because it takes about 15 years or longer for a HPV infection to become cancer. Genital warts, they turn up pretty quickly. And yeah. so even in males... So males who never who didn't get the vaccine by I think 2011, there'd be an over an 80 percent drop in genital warts in males. Extraordinary. So that was in sexual health clinics, but yeah. Extraordinary. On that point, for some time they have been considering whether boys should also be vaccinated with Gardasil because, um, as we know, the human papillomavirus is um, often. Um, carried by boys. So Leo, the, you don't have any boys. You don't have any boys, do you, Leo? <laughs> so the male program in Australia started in 2013 for 12 to 13-year-olds and with a catch-up program to 14 and 15-year-olds. So Australia has actually been running the very first male and female non-gender discriminatory HPV vaccination program since 2013. Boys get it. Boys get, boys the, get it. Junior. Yeah, get it. In fact, we, had a, we, had a, we could have a long ethical discussion about this because it's a very interesting thing but yeah my my boy got it and all that sort of stuff but it's just fascinating so so just going back to anti-vaxxers um so there's sort of a sense from what when i've been to some immunization conferences about the group of people that um you'll never convert to take to to get have vaccines and they're people that are very suspicious of the government and they think farmers involved and there's no trust and that you know we'll never get to them they would they just live with that and then there's the other group that are slightly hesitant at but what the no jab, no pay has done is if you've been a bit worried, but hang on, if there's dollars involved, all right, I'll let my kids have them, you know, because they're, and they're stepping up in the, the it's just gone to Parliament about um, decreasing payments fortnightly. So no. fortnightly will trigger you to go and have your kids um, vaccinated if there's some due. Mm. But um, what, do you have any comments about no pay, uh, no jab, no pay? So I guess one of the conflicts of interest is I was actually uh, an expert witness for No Jab, No Pay for the Senate inquiry. Um, and We've never had anybody who's been on the Senate inquiry in our studio before. I managed to... It's I, a first. It's, uh, <laughs> it, I managed to get the word penis, vagina and anus into a, uh, the government Hansard record, so um, I am small-minded and petty, but it was relevant. Uh, essentially, No Jab, No Pay is... It's certainly a very strong motive, but... In 20 years, nothing has changed. Something had to happen. The other thing that actually goes hand in hand is in Victoria, we have no jab, no play, which means that as of the first of this year, if your children is not immunised or have a medical exemption, they can't get into childcare. Mm, mm. Now, as a working parent, I know that that, even the money, you you could possibly rationalise against Mm. it, but in terms of not getting your kid into childcare, you're you're starting to look at nannies and other programs. Mm. But what we've actually seen is that I think there was 40,000 conscientious objectors mm-hmm. almost by the end of the year before No Jab, No Pay was introduced, 10,000 had dropped off the radar mm-hmm. and then a further five or 6,000 were vaccinated within the first six months, mm-hmm. fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there are catch-up programs and they can take some time and my understanding was around the Byron Bay area, which is where a lot of this is centred, uh, there are wait lists for vaccination. They were run off their feet. They couldn't get enough uh, immunisers. They couldn't get enough vaccines. I'm heading up there and... Two weeks' time. Bye well, bye. you're va- vaccinated. Your kids are. <laughs> my, my kids are vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. Thank you so much for coming on, Dave. I do hope you feel better. Um, Getting there. Yeah, it's not pleasant. Very unpleasant. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's certainly brutal. And uh, first Senate inquiry. Andy got the words, what did you say, penis, vagina and anus? It's, be, it's better than, you know, the front tube and the back tube or the, <laughs> the middle tube, tube or whatever people That's use. what we always used to say, didn't we? <laughs> I still feel a little bit uncomfortable front saying it. Front bottom. Front bottom. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, I was standing at an art exhibition opening, as I do, you know, glass of orange juice in my hand, nibbling a fig with some blue vein cheese, 
And up struts this uh, young uh, neurologist, and he goes, G'day, Mal. I said, G'day, Jeremy. What's been happening? He goes, Did you know? I said, Don't tell me, because I know it's going to be something exciting, and it's something that I want you to talk about on radiotherapy. So, Jeremy, just to set the context, tell us what you are and what you do and where you work. Uh, thanks, Dr. Mal. Um, yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a neurologist at the Royal mm-hmm. Children's Hospital. I've mm-hmm. never called myself a brain care specialist. Well, there you go. It's very apt. <laughs> Neurology encompasses not just the brain, but also the peripheral nervous system, mm-hmm. so the, the muscles and the, and the nerves, the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. But uh, as it happens, I am a brain care specialist because my particular area of interest is epilepsy mm. uh, and the management of epilepsy. And Just out of interest, how does, how do, you know, because I'm always fascinated by this, how does somebody become a specialist in epilepsy? Did you have a burning desire as a kid? Did you fall into it? How did it happen? Uh, I think you get in, you have influences over the years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think I was always interested in neurology. I was mm-hmm. initially interested in stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had some excellent mentoring. Mm. Yeah, I think that, that often and, happens, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, epilepsy is a... You know, seizures come from the cortex of the brain or the thinking part mm. of the brain. And uh, so the functional anatomy of the cortex is very interesting to me. You know, mm. what, what bits do what and, mm. you know, plasticity of the brain and so on. And you work uh, exclusively with children, yeah? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, that must be heartbreaking at times too to see kids that have intractable epilepsy or epilepsy that's very hard to treat. It is, it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, epilepsy is very common. Everyone would have someone that they know or in their family that, mm. that it is affected by epilepsy. Mm. It affects about one in 200 people. Mm, okay. um, but it's uh, got a much higher prevalence in childhood. Mm. And most childhood epilepsy is very, uh, I guess, the, the old word benign was used to, to mean something that was either easily treated mm-hmm. or that you would grow out of mm-hmm. and uh, you know two thirds or up to three quarters of epilepsy is easily managed easily treated um, uh, but that there's a very resistant mm-hmm. group uh, and what's that mostly due to that resistant group of epilepsy is there a brain kind of um, lesion or pathology that you can define or? it can be yeah. I, I think you know to make an analogy with infectious diseases like you, you say someone has epilepsy but like saying you've got the got an infection you could have something you know relatively self-limited that's uh, you know easily treated Mm -hmm. or you could have something very exotic or rare or or serious Mm -hmm. something that could actually shorten your lifespan Mm -hmm. Um, and so children who start out with a very resistant form of epilepsy particularly in infancy we're finding out more and more that uh, that those conditions are due to single gene disorders isn't that interesting? Because, you know, probably 20 years ago, we wouldn't have had the technology to pick up those genetic disorders. And now what you're doing is, what, giving a sample of their blood to a lab somewhere in the world to say, hey, screen for these disorders? Yeah, or even just a cheek swab. All right. And using this new genetic technology, the, the exome-based you know, sequencing technology... You've lost me. We but can... <laughs> well, um, it's called uh, next-generation sequencing of the yeah. DNA, so it's... a it's um, technology where you can sequence the entire um, exome, which are the which are the genes that uh, uh, go into sort of making up the proteins in the body. The or exome, the is it exome, called? yeah. So they're exome. all the, the functional parts of the of the of the genome. Oh, because so much of it doesn't code There's for protein. There's a lot of non-coding right. stuff in in our in our DNA. Oh. So that, that's the non-coding is introns. The coding is exons. You guys have no creativity. <laughs> intro, okay, so you're extra. either in or X. <laughs> okay, so the, so we're finding a significant number of people who have epilepsy um, may have a genetic uh, a coding error. Is that right? Particularly the, those um, very severe debilitating epilepsies yeah. that start in infancy. So we call those the infantile epileptic encephalopathies, huh. where children have significant you know seizures that don't respond to medication yeah. and significant developmental problems. Now, one of the other things that you mentioned to me at this art exhibition was that you are a prescriber of medicinal marijuana. I am. I am. Tell us your reflections on how that started and what it's been like. It's been a very interesting journey. So yeah. I have to, um, if I have a disclosure, it's that I'm on the Independent Medical Advisory Committee to the Health Minister as far as medicinal cannabis goes. Um, and it, you'd have to be you know, living under a rock not to mm-hmm. know about the community attitudes to medicinal cannabis. In, in the childhood epilepsy field, this started about four years ago uh, when CNN in the US actually um, had a story on a child called Charlotte Figge who was 
who had a particularly severe form of epilepsy called Dravet syndrome, mm-hmm. and uh, she happened to live in in uh, Colorado, mm-hmm. and her her mother gave her this oral cannabis extract from this strain of cannabis that produced a high. Uh, yes. So why why did she give it to her child? Well, I think she had she had many seizures and they weren't but being why, controlled. Why THC? Why why not Panadol? Yeah, it's a really good what? question. I, I I I just don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think people have been interested in medicinal properties of cannabis for a long time. And, so with uh, cancer treatments and things like that. Yeah, I guess um, whether it's uh, you know. Yeah, I, I suppose I'm not sure, but uh, so she gave her the marijuana. She gave her the this oil, marijuana oil, and uh, the the program reported that she stopped having seizures. Yeah. So you can imagine how parents of children with severe epilepsy felt across the country, um, uh, and uh, so a lot of people actually just upped and moved to Colorado, where where cannabis is is legal for for yeah. recreational yeah. use. Yep. And, and whatever, and, and so lots of people upped and moved with their with their children to to Colorado. So that was this four years ago, did you say? Yeah, twenty thirteen. So, so in four years' time, now it's now you're able to prescribe it in Melbourne. Well, it wasn't long after that that there was you know a report on the project about a Victorian child whose right. parent was giving them some oral oral right. cannabis extract, yeah. and uh, and then um, it was around the same time that the opposition. Uh, who's now now the government uh, mm. campaigned on being elected to provide medicinal cannabis to children with epilepsy, and mm. that was one mm. of their one of their uh, platforms. So, what is actually in this medicinal marijuana formulation? Is it the usual cocktail of uh, chemicals that give you a high and stuff? Or? So, there's there's a lot of different compounds in mm. in the plant cannabis. There's there are the cannabinoids, which are the sort of active ingredients, or the um, you know, and the, the most common one that you would have heard of is THC, mm-hmm. yeah, um, which is psychoactive and it gives, gives you the high. Gives you the high, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then another one is called cannabidiol. Cannabidi- cannabidiol, or cannabidiol. CBD. Right. Yeah. CBD. Yeah. And it's the CBD that's being uh, that's that's uh, said to be have an have anti epileptic properties. Right. Yeah. Okay. And and it's it's. Uh, some pharmaceutical companies have been doing some work with CBD, both preclinical and now clinical research, to, I guess, figure out whether it is is a good anti-epileptic. So, with the agent. medical marijuana per se, the one that is being prescribed in Victoria at present, there ain't no THC in it, so you don't get the high. That's right. Right. That's right. So, why the kerfuffle over it then? Oh. It's it's very interesting because you know if it was if it was turmeric um, there, there wouldn't be a kerfuffle. <laughs> People would just go and go and give turmeric. Um, I guess my question with this is I've I've actually written a bit on traditional Chinese medicine, which I think is actually a reasonable analogue for this, in that there are cannabinoids that actually increase your risk of cancer. So I guess where we are now, the only thing available for treating these seizures is is cannabis oil or, or the equivalent. Um, but obviously working out exactly how much of each biochemically active compound each of that is problematic. If the cannabinoid or the specific cannabinoid that is available by itself to treat seizures, would that be the natural uh, development of this as a program? So we go from using medical marijuana to the actual active ingredient without... I mean, I know that certainly in some traditional Chinese medicine there's one active ingredient in 79 other biochemically active ingredients which can obviously down the track cause problems. I think that's the real nub of it, Dave. I mean, I think um, when people go and source, mm. you know, cannabis extract from cannabis, you really don't know what's in it and mm. there, are, there are hundreds of different compounds, mm. terpenes and, and so on. Um, and uh, where we've got ourselves in a nut and why in a, into a sort of a knot mm. and why the kerfuffle is that... Um, uh, it's it's really been sort of left to doctors to prescribe, rather than say in some jurisdictions where uh, where where cannabis is recreationally legal, mm-hmm. um, uh, doctors don't prescribe cannabis. Mm-hmm. Uh, patient they they might certify the patient has a particular condition, and then the then the patient or the or the family go to a source it yeah. yeah to a place where they get whatever it is. I mean they don't know what they're getting. Yeah. And, uh, I think uh, yeah. I mean I think. The prescription model does require 
for doctors to prescribe that we know exactly what it is and that we know not yeah. only whether it works or not but whether it's safe or not. And what's been, what's been your experience so far and how many people have you treated with it? So in Victoria, 20, 29 children have been approved by a, a panel mm-hmm. Of, mm-hmm. of experts as, as qualifying for treatment with, mm-hmm. with cannabidiol. And uh, it's very difficult in an open-label sort of way of prescribing to know whether it's beneficial or not. Um, We certainly developed some experience with the side effects of it and sort of getting to know what the potential drug interactions are as well because it's a pharmaceutical, Mm -hmm. it has has interactions, Mm -hmm. it it, it sort of stimulates enzymes that that break down other medications and and so on. So we're getting some experience Mm -hmm. with what the common side effects are Mm -hmm. Um, but there's there's very little research out there that's sort of talking about whether it actually works or not, and I don't think you can really assess as a prescriber to to a, to a particular patient whether what 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 it is that you've prescribed has been effective. And what are those side effects? What are the drawbacks? Yeah, that's, uh, other than you know um, um, postulated thoughts about cancer and you know potential developmental delays or sedation on. Um, the patient's part. Yeah, we we really only know about uh, short term short term side effects and drug interactions. So, it, in combination with other medications, it can be sedating. Uh, sed- sedation is a very common side effect. Um, it's in an oil, and you can get diarrhea or mm. anorexia, mm. loss mm. of appetite. A, lo- a lot of the anticonvulsant medications um, are, uh, by their nature, sedating anyway. That's as far right. as sedation goes, is it any better, any worse? I think part of the there's a confounder in there. There's a lot of these children are taking a medication called clobazam, which is a kind of a long-acting mm-hmm. Valium type mm-hmm. benzodiazepine, and uh, cannabidiol really uh, inhibits the metabolism of one of the active uh, downstream metabolites of clobazam. So you get markedly elevated levels of these benzodiazepines. And that's probably the mechanism of the sedation. Oh, yeah, so yeah. it does get incredibly complicated, as it you were does. saying, in a clinical setting. And also, that might be the mechanism of the efficacy of it, of it as well. So if you're getting mm. boosted levels of benzodiazepines, the yeah. they are anticonvulsants in themselves. And so there's a bit of confounding there. So what's your reflection? I mean, you know, this isn't a peer-reviewed journal. This is, you know, just yeah. a couple of people having a chat. Do you get a sense it works sometimes, doesn't work sometimes? I think it does sometimes. I think yeah. it works in a, in a small small percentage of children. I mm. mean, these are children with very, very resistant seizures, and I think it does work in a small percentage of patients. Mm. Um, hasn't there been a significant um, publication in the New England Journal of Medicine? Thanks for bringing that up, EpiPen. There has. That's uh, very astute of you. You're obviously reading the New England Journal every week. Um, yeah. So there was a, a very sort of seminal paper published in, in July, I think it was, in the New England Journal, it's focusing on children with Dravet syndrome. Um, and... Uh, 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 quite a severe epilepsy with with uh, um, intractable seizures, and they showed that it was a placebo controlled you know double blind randomized trial, and they showed that uh, children who took the CBD as opposed to the placebo had a greater reduction in the number of seizures, but it was a modest effect, so it was about compared to placebo um, <coughs> it was about a twenty percent difference uh, so some of the children taking placebo had a reduction and some of the children taking and more of the children taking cannabidiol had a reduction and many of those children were also taking clobazam that's very commonly prescribed to children with Dravet mm. syndrome and so it can be you know hard to tease that out but at least it, we have the first evidence now that it, it may in fact have some anti-epileptic properties. Clearly EpiPen isn't working hard enough at her public hospital job with time to read journals unless you read it sort of on the weekend. On the weekend? Preparation <laughs> for the show today, yeah, it's Mal. fantastic. The New England Journal of Medicine, that is just fantastic. I haven't read that for a while. Where is the understanding at in terms of the actual physiological mechanisms that um, cannabinoid compounds might um, attenuate or stop seizure or aberrant electrical activity in the brain? Uh, it's... It's not all that well advanced, so um, don't think... So So we all have endogenous cannabinoid receptors, um, and THC certainly acts on those, but uh, it's not clear that cannabidiol, which is what we're talking about, mm-hmm. CBD, mm-hmm. acts on those, and, and the mechanism of how it might stop seizures is really 
not well characterised. Very briefly, Jeremy, because you know we've got you on the show. Can you just touch on something that you also told me about at this gallery opening a couple of weeks ago? Was this where you're now using viral vectors? to cut out genes in people with... or to, to do something with genes in people with genetic miscodes? There's some very exciting work going on in, in conditions that I, I'm not principally responsible yeah. for managing. So uh, there are some neurodegenerative conditions where children are missing a certain enzyme. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's one particular very devastating and very common neuromuscular disorder that affects children called spinal muscular atrophy, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is kind of like a motor neuron disease yeah. in children. Um, uh, where there are new gene therapies emerging and being shown to be effective to to really alter the course of of those illnesses, uh, one of the one of those therapies is a is using a viral vector. Yeah. Um, so tell us, just tell us. I mean, tell us how it works. Do, 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 do you give a? I mean, somebody's got a, too much of a gene or the wrong gene or something, and this viral vector goes there and clips that out. Is that how it works? I think uh, we could probably devote, you know, a few, uh, another, yeah. another, another <laughs> You're explaining show it to, to me, it. so just you have to lower your expectations when you're explaining it to First, me. First, I have to understand it myself, which is, <laughs> you know, part of the problem. But I think uh, uh, you're talking about spinal muscular atrophy, yeah. really, which is a, a condition where where um, a, a gene is... There's a spelling mistake in a gene. All oh, right. Yeah. But we all carry a sort of an alternate gene. Yeah. And so the, the genetic technology is used to try and up-regulate or the you know, increase the production of that alternate, the alternate gene, gene rather right. than correcting the, the one that has the spelling mistake in it. Yeah. And the viral vector is really used to introduce to, uh, to the nervous system... Yeah. That, that, that genetic therapy, yeah, oh, that's right. So when do you reckon, I mean, you know, pie in the sky, when do you reckon, not, I mean, putting your finger up to the window, I mean, when do you reckon this will become common use, like, you know, a neurologist sitting in his or her office will be able to say, you know, I'm going to write out a script for some viral vector. When do you reckon that's going to happen? One year, two years, 10 years, 20 years? Oh, very soon. In fact, it's... Uh, it's um, Next week? Not far off being an approved, uh, an approved treatment. So we're talking... Months to a year now. Well, now? It's, it's currently happening. Yeah. So oh. there's actually a there has been for the last two years a viral vector approved for a lipid uh, issue in Europe. Uh, the drug's name is Glibera. Uh, their clinical trial was 14 people. Essentially, you overproduce a certain lipid, which leads to chronic pancreatitis. Uh, it was approved. Um, one woman is actually being treated in Germany, and it was a series of injections into her muscles. Uh, and as uh, and the follow up that I have is she's cured. Of a genetic disease, however, the price tag is what might. Yeah, yeah. So one point four million dollars. But when you talk about the hospitalisations of yeah, pancreatitis, yeah. I think that for that particular condition, I can understand how it could be. And economy of scales too, as this becomes more common, it'll get cheaper to produce and more commonly prescribed, and so forth. Jeremy, we could spend days talking about this as you rightly said so we've got to get you back on the show with dave because you two are a nice sort of team act because again you're both been before parliament and (laughs) (laughs) how good is that none of us have um to uh, testify as experts which was really great so thank you so much dr jeremy freeman we're going to come right back at you with some dr junior because we're going to be sharing stuff about consent to taking part of a medical trial what that's been like. He's nodding very sagely at me. If only you could see this. Thanks to yours truly, we have gone way over time with our two previous guests because what they were talking about was so fascinating. And I've cut short Junior's segment. I'm so sorry, Junior. That's no problem. Um, I, I do know. I do know. Um, because we talked about it on Friday night when, you, uh, when we had uh, dinner together that um, you were part of a, of a clinical trial and I was... Uh, uh, you know, when we're talking about the consenting procedures and what it's like to be consented as a doctor and, and so forth. Look, can I just give you my reflections on the whole consenting procedure? It's really interesting, like, when we consent somebody for a medical intervention. And by the way, consent used to be a noun, now it's a verb, yeah, because we consent somebody, but that's not really the true way that the word was supposed to be used. And it's just, it's interesting. So, you know, if you, say you consent somebody who is who does have capacity, who does understand what... Uh, the doctor is talking about it still is a is a a fraught process with so many like challenges isn't it it is an extremely fraught Mm. process um 
And as you rightly said, um, Mal, for the past six months um, and for the next six months, I've been participating in a clinical trial. I thought I'd put money where my mouth is, being both a clinician and a researcher, um, to experience what it's like to A, be a patient and B, be a trial participant. Um, and, you know, even th- all through my training and, you know, um, nowadays as a clinician, you know, when you sort of take um, informed consent from a patient to undergo an intervention, the whole process is um, worryingly abbreviated. Mm. Um, there are certain key principles involved mm. in um, obtaining one's obt- uh, informed consent, some of which you've already alluded to, mm. but also the patient has to demonstrate that he or she can weigh up options A and B and what's the worst um, scenario if they don't you know, take the intervention that you're proposing and they have to do it in an autonomous manner, it's not being influenced by the doctor or their um, spouse, etc., etc. And, you know, I think this is all something that we don't really do very well. Yeah, I, look, I, strangely, you know, you often realise when you don't do things well, like or when something could be done better when you see it done really well. And I've, uh, uh, I know some surgeons, for instance, some orthopaedic surgeons who do it really well. Like they say to the patient, look, this is what you need. This is my recommendation. Let's say it's a, it's a knee replacement. This is a video of some of the key things you need to, to, to think about. Go home, watch it, come back later with a list of questions to ask me about and then we'll discuss cons- getting your consent for the operation. You know, have your wife or son or daughter watch it with you. And I, I just love that because, you know, so often when you're, in a, when you're in with a professional, whether it's your doctor, your lawyer, your accountant, your whoever, you're full of anxiety. You can't weigh things up and make decisions really, really quickly. You have to go home, let it percolate, let, discuss it with people you love, make a, a, a kind of a seasoned decision rather than a kind of on-the-spot decision. I, I can... I reckon that's really important, just having time to reflect, you know. Even even when you do have full capacity to weigh up the options, things might change. You might discuss it with somebody and another idea might occur to you. I mean, that, that that's kind of something that's kind of run through my mind. And having said that, it's now time to finish up radiotherapy. Oh, my goodness. You get double the amount of time next time, uh, Dr. Junior. Uh, you have my apologies and I've failed as a host of this show. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jeremy Freeman, for coming in to talk with us about so many things neurological. Thank you also to Dr. Dave Hawkes for coming in and talking to us about things viral. Thank you to EpiPen for just everything, for putting the show together, really. EpiPen, you're, you're fantastic. And uh, thanks also to uh, to Dr. Junior, who I owe a, uh, a cup of coffee to. Coming up right now, in fact, this second, uh, the scientists from Einstein and Gogo in studio, too. They're looking, they're chomping at the bit. They're ready to go. Uh, we will come right back at you next week on some more radiotherapy. Until then, we will see you later. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.